0: G'day, welcome to The Story and let's dive in now to a theme which is slightly unfashionable these days. You know, I've been a Christian since 1982. That's a long time by anyone's scale. And I remember what Christianity in Western form was like back then, what was the norm back then. You know, back then records were still vinyl. You had to play them and there was a needle that played on the whole thing. Phones were connected to walls. Computers had punch cards. If you wanted to date someone, which was something I probably would have liked to have done back then, but you had to call up someone's home, hope their dad didn't answer and ask him out that way. Uh, people who had a job often worked for one employer for many decades and had one career only. You know, back then Hillsong didn't exist. Televangelists were taken seriously. Jesus was coming back at any moment, apparently. There were all sorts of assumptions going on there about life. But there are some really interesting assumptions that we don't so much share today or aren't as common today about core theology and things that matter to us. We we took some things for granted. Sin, confession, sexuality, right and wrong. These things for millennia were unchallenged. And yet now you roll forward to 2021 and these things are being challenged and it forces us to question so many things. And yet my question today is, are those themes that I just mentioned, sin, confession, so on, are they as outdated as my old LP records? Well, religious leaders now question these sorts of things. Marriage definition, salvation by faith, all sorts of things are up for grabs these days, which in, back in 1982 would have been completely unthinkable as it would have been for uh, millennia before that. And so today I want to raise through the story the issue of sin. And it's definitely an unfashionable theme these days as grace, as it's understood more and more. And there's nothing wrong with a, a sound and fantastic theology and experience of grace, but not necessarily at the expense of the given theology of sin. And so the effects of sin, because they've been minimized in the public square, can somehow become escalating in their impact. In times of revival, obviously grace becomes a thing and sin becomes minimized in our day. Back in a hundred years ago when revival came along, interestingly, it was a presence of the spirit that literally, exemplified or showed people their sin in almost a regional basis. And there was incredible repentance and salvation by faith came from that. Interesting that these days, not so much that's the emphasis. And so what I want to do is give you the backstory now, along with the story. We're up to the, the story of now King David. He's king. And the trials of this man, has he really experienced that which if he'd positioned himself better, if he'd been wiser in what he was doing at this time, he wouldn't have suffered the incredible consequence that became a key story in his life and the story of generations after him. And it's a result of sin. Nothing more, nothing less. And the ramifications of that for a person who God could still openly say was a man after my own heart. And yet sin was woven in to David's story and the ramifications of that. So let's pick it up now in 2 Samuel 11, 1-3. And, and it's talking about David after he's already conquered most of his enemies and he's, he's getting a bit comfortable, a bit relaxed in what he's doing. It says, in, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent out Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba. He may as well have said, she is kryptonite for this guy. She is a daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In David's days, there was like a subclause in the contract that you sign when you put the crown on your head that says, well, it's springtime, you go out to war. You go out and establish your territory. You take over your enemies and all that sort of thing. And David hadn't run out of enemies. The wars were still going on. But he really had run out of urgency. He just thought, well, anyone could do it now. I've taken care of most of the big guys. Now it's just a little scraps to to pick up. And we see then that in that context, idle hands become the devil's playground. And so there's Bathsheba on the roof. And uh, she's an Old Testament version of what we might call these days a bit of clickbait for him. I mean, he wasn't looking at that woman on the roof and going, I bet she's got a fantastic personality. He was objectifying. He was seeing them as a means to an end. She was an object. And David wasn't looking for a conversation there. He should have been out to war and instead he turned this into his easy victory. This poor woman who was above there, hopefully assuming, minding her own business, taking care of ceremonial cleansing and so on, became an object of desire for this king. And there's a word in the Old Testament that we use less and less these days called iniquity. And in the original language, it was made up of three uh, Hebrew characters, hieroglyphs. Uh, And one was the eye, one was a fish hook, and one was uh, like a scaled up version of fish. It was one and two, then then five fish. Eye, hook, multiply. What the eye hooks onto, multiplies. That's what iniquity literally meant. Avon was the Hebrew word. What the eye hooks onto will multiply. What you allow yourself to gaze upon, then think about, ends up overflowing into actions. This same concept of iniquity flows over into the New Testament. Look at what it says in James 1.13 When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. You can see the spiral of death there, what the eye hooks onto, the desire starts. We're tempted. We're all tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted because it happens to all of us. It's how we respond to that. He's saying when the eye hooks onto that, that desire multiplies and James says grows into sin, ultimately to death. And so David takes Bathsheba and, uh, by force and, and then the ramifications of that as well, in the weeks that follow, She literally sends him the text saying, hey, David, I'm a girl in trouble. There's there's a problem here and we need to be able to deal with that. So his response, like the rest of us, is when sin becomes uh, a temptation to be exposed there, or uh, it could potentially be exposed, he runs and he hides. He wants to cover the whole thing up. So he says, look, find this girl's husband and get him to sleep with her. Let it be done quickly so uh, the guilt can't be pinned back to me. And so they call Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back from the battlefront where David should be. They call him back and say, stay with your wife for the weekend. But this guy is such a man of honor. He says, I'm not going to go in and have a weekend of pleasure with my wife while my my friends, my band of brothers are out there dying on the battlefield. So he literally slept on the the doorsteps of his house rather than go in. In other words, there was no way known that David was going to be able to say, uh, this is Uriah's baby. And so the next thing he does is goes up a whole new level and sends Uriah out to the front of the battle, not just the front, but the front line, very much in harm's way, where anyone on that line is inevitably going to be killed. And that's what happens. Uriah dies. And so Bathsheba is left widowed. And so the community is left to assume that this baby um, is Uriah's and she's a widow that's pregnant. And the whole matter then could possibly look forgotten, except it's not forgotten. It's not forgotten by David. It's not forgotten by God. And this momentary fail brought a long-term result. This sin, even though ultimately forgiveness would come, would bring incredible ramifications. You see, the lust that gets us into trouble is soon forgotten. But shame stays long. Look at what David himself wrote about, about this very moment in Psalm 32, verse 3. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. We see sin. We know it's happened. We know the ramifications. We know it's not a victimless crime. We know there's something we've done wrong against ourselves, against other people and against God. And anyone with an ounce of integrity about us suffers under the weight of unconfessed sin. But if we allow it to go on, if we repeat and repeat, ultimately sin hardens our heart. Eventually, we don't even begin to feel that guilt anymore. And that's an even more dangerous position when our conscience no longer sears us. And then a slip into sin turns into a sowing into sin. And the Bible, the New Testament especially, is incredibly clear about the difference between a slip, a a, a temporary fall into something which can be forgiven, as opposed to a sowing, an investment into sin with the fullness of our life and how God responds to that. He says in Galatians 6, 7-8, to 8, Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And so there's a sowing, and there's a reaping. There's a seed planted, and there's a harvest that comes from that. It's irrespective of forgiveness. Sin is planted, and the result comes from that. So it's not forgotten by David. He's suffering under the load of this thing. And it's not forgotten by God either. Nathan the prophet was very responsive to what God was saying and and really got the download from God about what David had done. Finds a way to come to David face to face, eye to eye. In the end, finger to nose. And nails David with the reality of his sin. He comes to him with a story and he says, you know, David, tell me what I should do about this. There's a rich man who has lots of sheep and lots of cattle. And there's a poor man who all this man has is one ewe lamb, one cherished ewe lamb. And he, and he cares for that lamb. He really just fosters and gives everything he can to this single ewe lamb. But a visitor comes along and asks for some food of the rich man. So the rich man seizes the poor man's ewe lamb. David, what should I do about that? And the king, it triggers something in this shepherd king. And his anger rises up and he says, that man should surely die. David eyeballs him and says, you are the man. David, you are that man. Why have you done this? How have you let this go and try to blame it on something or some other circumstance? David then crumbles to his feet and recognizes that the sin has been exposed. It's almost like the, it's a chance for him to let the load of it off his shoulders. And he says, it's true. It's me. I've done this. What do I do next as he confesses his sin before God? It's an interesting point here that this response from David to judge that other man in the story so quickly, the the reality that those who judge the harshest are often those who have something in themselves that they hate. Was David judging in him something that he saw in himself? Was there something about him that he saw in this story and said, this is wrong, this must be dealt with? Was it just triggering his own guilt and he was responding out of that? But to his credit, David didn't deny, he didn't cover up anymore. He welcomed a chance just to deal with this. And so the guilt was off his shoulders. And so the response from Nathan the prophet was in 2 Samuel twelve eleven, This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. And so we see this incredible dynamic where under that old dispensation, when there was sin, there was, there was judgment. There was no uh, grace given through the cross that we find where there seems to be this long delayed um, dynamic where we sin, but the judgment has already gone upon Jesus. And then ultimately on the judgment day, God opens the book and our name is in the book of life and we're declared innocent. This wasn't the story so much in their day. They were operating under a law and a judgment uh, paradigm with God. And so we see this now begin to tease out where the prophet has said, you've done something in private. Something is going to happen now because of this in public. And uh, we're unsure whether this is an act of judgment or just an act of consequence. It was just—it was going to happen. It was, and if David hadn't have sinned, this other thing that's going to happen one day would not have taken place. But what was to happen in that family, whatever, however it was to roll out, David, because of his sin and the publicness now of that, had lost the moral authority to really speak into that, to address the same issues in his own family. Ultimately, one of his sons raped his half-sister. And David either could not or would not do anything about it, even though he was angry about it. And then another son, Absalom, killed that brother because of what he'd done. And that same son, Absalom, fulfilled this prophecy by raping David's concubines in broad daylight, in full view of all of Israel. And Absalom, of course, as you know, the story was eventually killed. This is dysfunction. This is a troubled, troubled family. And David was unable, for whatever reason, to deal with it or to stop it. And, you know, you know, our world in the way that God is dealing with us in a slightly different way, in an era that emphasizes grace. We needn't feel obliged to nullify this theology of sin and its consequence. Judgment through the cross has taken away from us. Consequence hasn't. Our sin still causes trouble for ourselves, for our families, and for God. It has a consequence. Firstly, for us. Sin has a consequence for us we hide. We hide from God. We suffer the shame. And so we fail to experience freedom from that point. And it takes us to this dark place in our life, in our inner soul, where there's no light to expose it. We lose perspective. We lose hope for change. We lose hope for the fact that we'll ever be able to not do this again. We lose self-worth. It affects us in the sense that we, it, sin catalyzes more sin. It becomes ultimately normalized in our life, it becomes the way we live our life and it becomes grown upon. So something that starts small becomes something big. We find ourselves living a progressively growing lie. 1 John 1:6 says that if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live in the truth. This is a harsh light to put on us when we reflect on our own sin and yet the way we can so quickly and openly say, well, no, I'm a man of faith. We all know we're imperfect, but the truth of it is, in some areas of our life, if we feel or commit to an obligation to sin, we're living a lie. And so it's best to own that, to deal with that, and work our way through that. You know, we die a little more each day if we feel this obligation of the sin. Romans 8.13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. He's not talking there about physical dying. He's talking about soul death. He's talking about the fact that you sin, it kills you inside. Ultimately, it's decaying away your soul. But if you live according to the Spirit, you will live. So there's consequences for us. There's consequences, obviously, for others. For David, his family model was decimated and propagated by dysfunction. It was mucked up, messed up, stayed that way. Literally until Jesus came, who was a descendant ultimately of David. So others pay a price, indirectly and directly. Poor old Uriah, he suffered directly. Bathsheba paid her price. Uh, there was a son born and that son died. There's the, 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 the ramifications of our actions more directly. The, the people that we don't treat well, uh, they're treated wrongly. Poor old Uriah, as an example. There's the big effect on other people. But thirdly, there's firstly the, direct, the, the effect on us, then the direct on others. But there's also still this effect on God. And this is good for us to meditate on. Our sin, even though judgment is lifted, our sin still does affect our relationship with God. This, it's a dynamic that's definitely undersold in this day. Uh, and we wonder, well, if judgment is taken away by the cross, what ramifications could there possibly be? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.19 talks about it. It's saying that we can grieve or quench the Spirit through our actions. It says, uh, also in Ephesians 4.30, 31, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. He's saying there that our actions, our sin grieves, grieves the Spirit. So it offends God and it grieves the influence of God in our life. Further than that, Ephesians 4.26 talks about how our sin gives our enemy, the evil one, A foothold in our life. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. You look at that and you think, why on earth would I want to give my enemy who hates me, who hates God and whose single mission is to have us separate from him? Why would I give that guy any fuel by choosing deliberately to live a life that goes along with what he wants? Why would I fuel that fire? When you see it in that context, it's very sobering for the way we see our life. So where do we find ourselves in the story? Well, there's just a few uh, anecdotes we could bring out of that. The understanding that sin, it's understandable. But that understanding does not equate to being acceptable. It's understandable. It's not acceptable. None of us would think of David's story there. There's no red-blooded man on earth could read that and go, I have no comprehension of how he could possibly fall into that. Everyone battles with their temptations. Everyone battles with their lust. It's understandable. It comes at us all, but it's never acceptable. It's never okay. Uh, We can't just say, I don't understand how this happened and and then walk away as if it could never happen in our own life. Sin always is at our doorstep, crouching, waiting to attack. It always kills. It never brings life. It's never acceptable. But forgiveness, uh, it cancels judgment, but forgiveness doesn't cancel consequence. The effects on our life go on and the history, even though the effects of it in judgment are, are wiped away, the effects relationally, emotionally and all those other dynamics still remain. Temptation is inevitable, as I've said over and over. Sin is not. Temptation is inevitable. It's going to come. Our choice to sin is not. This is big for us. We need to understand there is no inevitability about us having to choose. We can't say it's someone else's fault or it's because something came at me or I had no choice in the matter. You do. We do. The book of uh, Romans is crystal clear in that. We have an obligation, it says, but it is not to the sinful nature. It is to something else and Romans chapter 8 says that obligation is to follow the Holy Spirit. The choices are ours. The options are ours. The power of the Spirit is ours. Sin is uh, understandable, but it's not acceptable. It has consequence. You and I need forgiveness of sin. We've received it ultimately through the cross of Christ, for all that we've done, all that we'll ever do. Who can comprehend the size of the job done on the cross, for all of humanity to receive forgiveness? And it goes on in the book of 1 John to say that Jesus was the propitiation for our sin. Big word, that one. That basically just means the removal of God's wrath by the offering of a gift. Jesus offered himself as a gift and the wrath of judgment for the Christian who places their faith in what he has done is taken away. And yet the ramifications often will remain. So what do you do today with the the leaven, so to speak, of sin in your life? Have you seen it as an obligation or has today shown you that this is something that needs to be wiped out of your life? Let's pray together as we contemplate that. Father, I pray for each one. I pray for myself, all of us who grapple with the reality of an imperfect nature. And yet the promise, Father, that we have the perfect spirit within us, giving us all that we need to live a godly life. Lord, I declare, as, as you've said to declare in John 20, that those who are declared forgiven are forgiven. And I declare forgiveness amongst all who are listening here today. Forgiveness of our sin. Judgment lifted off them for those who have confessed to you and those who place their faith in you. But Father, I pray for courage for those who still feel under the obligation of sin. Will you show them the reality of the power of your spirit to overcome sin, that we do have a choice. Father, help them to find an appropriate way, an appropriate place, an appropriate person with which to find confession. Because that which is brought out into the light, darkness, no longer has a hold. So, Father, give us that grace today so we can move on and deal with our life in proportion, Lord, with the blessing and yet the consequence of what we've done. The blessings from you, the consequence of our own actions. Father, fill us with your grace, fill us with hope, and thank you for your forgiveness. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. We'll bless you. And it's been a shame we couldn't look uh, at each other face to face today, but let's hope for next week. Uh, and we'll see you then. Bye now.